Well, um, I know it's a lot to ask. Uh, did you guys read ahead in Psalm 1? Okay. Six verses. It's getting tough for Westerners these days if you can't watch it. I don't know. So I guess by way of introduction, um, you know, Hannah Whittall Smith. Anyone know that name? Hannah Whittall Smith. She wrote the, the classic work, The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life. The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life. Not a, not a bad read at all. I read it about <clears throat> 17 years ago. Uh, when I was reading a lot of um, sort of turn of the, the former century uh, books uh, by uh, various authors from the, uh, the Keswick movement, both of England and New Zealand, and uh, some interesting, some very good, like Joel, uh, um, Oswald Sanders, not Chambers. That was a little bit later, though. Um, a lot of those people, A.B. Simpson, and even before that with D.L. Moody and, and so many others. And then reading about all of these people and their experience, I, I started coming to the point where I feel like a lot of time and ink is spent on, spent on saying what the scriptures have already covered. You ever do that? You read and read and read, and people are saying the same thing over and over, and, and, um, <clears throat> which I don't think is bad, but the, the real benefit of getting uh, it from the word is that the word alone is inspired, and it is the very source uh, of our sanctification, the thing that satisfies the believer. You know, experiencing Christ through his word is the Christian's true source of happiness. It's the true source. Uh, Christian books, regardless of how well they're written, uh, they leave the reader, honestly, in the very place they began, uh, needing for themselves to be nourished by the word of God. Uh, I, I'm thankful for so many people that have written, uh, especially those that shed light on my understanding of scripture. Uh, but something I get tired of is people's experience. You know why? Because I covet the experience. And the only place to get it is in communion with God and through the study of his word. So Hannah, like so many other authors, I think could simply point us to the counsel of Psalm 1, which would direct us to the same source that inspired their book, right? Yeah. So again, I'm not slamming the time and the ink put into Christian literature. I'm critical of those who avoid the scriptures for other inferior works. <clears throat> it's time to be able to, to I, I guess I would say, uh, prepare our own meals from the scriptures themselves. So please follow along as I read Psalm 1 to you, whoever the author is. He said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." But the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Yeah, pretty direct, isn't it? So verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits 
in the seat of the scornful. Okay. Um, now this uh, the first psalm is not the only is is not only the first in uh, what we'll call the treasury. It's first in a body of psalms called the wisdom psalms. Okay, which reads a bit like a proverb, but. Uh, for a proverb, it would be a rather long one since all the thoughts are connected. Um, it's a wise saying that points the listener to a prudent lifestyle. And the, this particular psalm begins with happiness. He says, blessed is the man. Uh, now this word is funny because uh, throughout the New and the Old Testament, you have one English word for typically three words from the original language, and they all mean something very different. Uh, but this one here uh, means happiness means to be happy. Who, who doesn't want to be happy? Okay, there's a consensus right there. Yeah. But of course, we have to be careful to define the word biblically, because what we'll do is we'll arrive at some <clears throat> definition that, you know, our culture uh, uh, would like for happiness rather than what God intended. Something I think that's important also to consider here is that um, this particular document is about 3,000 years old, and it demonstrates that happiness is one of man's oldest pursuits and desires, okay? um, which indicates it's one of man's deepest longings. And the reason it's one of our deepest longings is because we wrecked ourselves uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and uh, rebelling against God, being alienated from his presence, uh, has robbed us of what real happiness is. And so it's always that ideal, that thing that we're trying to get back to. Uh, happiness is important to us, uh, I, th I think, um, since our founding, uh, our Declaration of Independence. Uh, those who influenced its writing believe that the pursuit of happiness is one of man's most fundamental rights. Uh, it's not simply what um, what each person desires, all people believe they should have the right to pursue it. We all believe that in ourselves. Uh, we may not believe that others have the right to pursue happiness, but we most certainly believe that we do as individuals. Amen? You're not going to agree to that? If I follow you around long enough, I'll prove that point. Yeah. But as the text bears out, this happiness does not spring from, you know, what a man has by his possession or possessions, or reputation, or position in this life, or what he has accomplished for himself, but rather by what God says he should not do, and by what God says that he ought to do. Those are the things. The combination of the two produce what the Holy Spirit defines uh, as happiness. And the omission of them leads not simply to unhappiness, but destruction. Destruction. So first in the text are... Uh, the three things the blessed man avoids. The blessed man refrains from walking in the counsel of the ungodly, from standing in the path of sinners, and from sitting in the seat of the scornful. Uh, hopefully, almost immediately, you notice kind of a trilogy there uh, in that one verse. <clears throat> so first are the verbs. There's walk, sit, stand. It's actually a commentary. Uh, I can't remember his name. On the Psalm 1, a book um, but then there's also commentary on Ephesians, which is sit, walk, stand. That's from Watchman Nee. Second are the negative, uh, we might say, philosophies, the counsel, path, and seat, and then the, the final three negative adjectives, ungodly, sinners, 
and scornful. Three phrases at uh, three groups of three. Now, in trying, you know, reading this and trying to interpret it, um, uh, some have suggested that it's a progression in the text from the first line to the third, uh, like this, that, that someone's demise uh, really begins by giving ear to counsel or to advice of the ungodly, and then before long, they stand with them, they consort with them, uh, identifying with them, and then until finally they're seated with them, and they're settled in the ways of the ungodly, mocking and scorning all that is wholesome and virtuous. And this digression, rather, uh, in the text is uh, a reasonable observation, which actually represents how, you know, we say bad company corrupts good habits. But other commentators have suggested that the truly represents only one thing, one thing, uh, that there's no real difference between walking, standing, and sitting in this regard. Uh, the council path and seat really symbolize the same thing, and the ungodly sinners and scornful are just different terms for the same kind of people, okay? Well, to the blessed man, these things really are all uh, one and the same. There's worldliness, ungodliness, secularism, and there's what is good and wholesome and godly over here. Uh, the world, you might say the flesh and the devil, all that is secular, which means of this worldliness, that is all that he avoids altogether. And I think that interpretation is most accurate because the first view explains how a godly person uh, could lose their blessedness, but that's not what the text is trying to communicate. Uh, the assertion is true. You can lose your godliness through the counsel, uh, through all of those other things. But it's not what verse one is getting at. The text just explains rather what the way of the blessed man is, not what he's becoming or, or falling into, okay? If we were to observe the life of the person who uh, enjoys this blessedness, uh, we would see a life that has no connection to the things in verse one. There is no advice from the ungodly that he's willing to bend his ear to so that he would walk in their counsel. That's what the godly or the, the blessed man does. His sympathies are not such with sinners that he would stand among their ranks because that would misrepresent his king. And he's far from identifying as one of them by voicing his scorn for what is wholesome. That's not what a blessed man does. He is happy in God because he has steered clear of the way of the ungodly. And so it's the godless and their ways which are held in contrast to God and his ways. So verse two, he says, but, or in contrast, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, Hebrew says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think day and night uh, would communicate that. And so it's, it's in this contrast that the author means to emphasize uh, to, in order to reveal the true source of a godly man's happiness. Uh, there's the world and its ways. There's God and his ways, each concluding with their own consequences, uh, of course, later in the text. The, now, real quick, the reference here to the law is probably not a reference to Exodus 19 through Deuteronomy or even the Ten Commandments per se, uh, but to God's revelation in general, in general. If it requires that we have the Ten Commandments in the law, then that means that uh, Noah could not be happy. It means that Abraham could not be happy, and that's not true, okay? It's not true. 
Um, the Hebrew word for law is Torah, which means really instruction. Uh, we often uh, interpret it as law. It's funny, when I've evangelized Jews and we've talked about Torah, and they, keep, they say, you keep saying law. The word means instruction. Instruction. Always correcting me. Uh, and, and it's true. When you studied in, in, in lexical aids and things, the word literally means instruction. Um, now, if David... I, just, I think it's important to point this out. If David is the author of this psalm, understand that the only portions of God's word available to him were Genesis through maybe the first part of 1 Samuel. It's interesting to think about. Now, we have the completion of all progressive revelation through history with what we have, but David, he just had the first five books, Joshua, Judges, and into his biography, if you will. And he had the book of Job as well. Uh, most of the Old Testament literature wasn't written. Only half of Israel's history had been recorded. None of the poetry, but this psalm. Imagine, you're, you're waiting for the next thing to come out on the press. That's when the word of God is being actively inspired. Um, uh, none of the prophets, and of course, nothing from the New Testament. Uh, but the revelation available to David was sufficient to secure this blessedness. We mentioned Abraham. Abraham lived a thousand years before David, who had very, very little revelation. But he had sufficient revelation to be satisfied. We even understand that in Genesis 15.1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Of course, and then, Abraham says, what, you, what will you give me saying that I go childless? Now Abraham missed it because God was offering himself to Abraham to satisfy him. Okay? I am your exceedingly great reward. Think he could emphasize the, 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 the greatness of the reward that we have in God anymore? I don't think so. Yeah, But God, through the revelation of himself, he was enough to satisfy Abraham, this great reward. The same blessedness and satisfaction is expressed later by David in Psalm 19, 7 through 11. I'll bring up some of that later. But I think a question that we, or even an affirmation, you know, but how much more so today are we able to be satisfied and enjoy the blessedness seeing that we have God's word in its completed form to us? Just think about how much more revelation you have than David, than David, yeah. But of course, it's, simply, it's not simply the possession of God's revelation that secures this happiness. Otherwise, Americans would be the most blessed and happy people on the planet because we have so many Bibles. How many of you guys have five Bibles? How many have perhaps 30 Bibles on your phone? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, Americans, by and large, are not experiencing biblical happiness. Uh, Western culture has bred uh, the least content and the biggest complainers on the planet. We're spoiled rotten. And uh, we're not grateful for anything. We're not thankful. Yeah. We have all these Bibles, but we lack what it promises. Why? Because the author says that the blessed man delights and he meditates on the word both day and night. That doesn't mean that you read it all day, all night. Um, I find myself chewing and wrestling on passages, uh, ones that I'm teaching, uh, ones that I don't like, uh, you, there's verses in the Bible you don't like, right? Okay. Uh, there's ones that uh, apply to you 
you wish they didn't apply to you. Uh, there's others that I wish they applied to me and they don't. Um, I'm always wrestling with different pieces of theology, uh, all kinds of stuff in the scriptures. And, and then I read some more and then the wrestling match begins all over again. But that's, that is the nature of meditation, is, is thinking upon it and, and trying to squeeze it for all it's worth and, and wrestling with the concepts and its application. And, and that's what's so necessary. Yeah, no one delights in God's word or, um, or meditates upon it so intently unless they're familiar with its content and they've experienced its goodness through obedience. That is really how you experience this blessedness is through understanding the scriptures and walking them out in obedience. That's when you experience God's goodness because his promises, they come along with that. But sadly, you know, many statistics demonstrate that Bible knowledge is at an all-time low in Western culture, and lawlessness is at an all-time high. That is because more and more people are walking, standing, and sitting in the council path and seat of the ungodly sinful scorners. See how he broke up the trilogy? It was pretty slick, huh? While less and less people are delighting and meditating on the word of the Lord, and we're paying the price both individually and societally. Wherever the church wanes, society will come with it. Family will go with it. Church will go with it. Yeah, so the benefits of God's word, I don't believe it can really be quantified. One of my favorite statements in all of scripture in, in relation to this is what Job says in, uh, in Job 23, 12. He says that I have treasured your word more than my necessary food. Now what have you ever treasured more than your necessary food? Paul talks about those whose God is their belly. Uh, that's probably Western society. Okay, this, the, the, the belly, it's a curse. Yeah, I have treasured your word. I've cherished it. The words of your mouth more than my necessary food. He could treasure the word that way because he had experienced it. He knew its goodness. He'd experienced the promises. Uh, David spoke of the word as, um, and mind you, this is just one verse uh, I've set out to like, catalog all the benefits of the word before and just been overwhelmed. Um, but one verse, um, he says uh, that it, it, it's perfect converting the soul, making the simpleton wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, that they are true altogether to be desired more than gold. They're sweeter than honey, rewarding the obedient. Now, those are all expressions born out of experience experiencing God through his word. David knew. He knew. Yeah, so without the revelation of God, without God at the center and the source of his word, the Bible is simply uh, one moral philosophy among others, even one moral philosophy opposed to another. Uh, without God, there's no real moral imperative. Without God, there's no one to energize the blessedness. But when God is met and experienced through his word, there is life and there's transformation. We know enough stories like that. And there is happiness. So how's the blessedness described? Verse three, the blessed man, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now do not think of trees planted by rivers of water in Washington. Palestine is nothing like that. That brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So uh, when you read that, that poetic language is very promising, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a guarantee. 
it's filled with hope. As, as a tree planted by the rivers of water, he's saying, so is the man who delights and he meditates on the word of the Lord. So if you break that down, we could say it is because he's well-nourished like a tree planted near the water. Uh, that has much more significance uh, when you think of it in a desert place, an arid place like the Negev in Israel. Okay? He also nourishes others. He's useful to other people like a tree that gives its fruit faithfully. That's a necessity in agrarian culture, isn't it? What did Jesus say when a, a, tr- a tree doesn't bear fruit? Get it out of there lest it use up the soil and deplete its nutrients. Because in agrarian culture, you need stuff that bears fruit. Yeah. He is enduring like a leaf that does not wither in the summer heat. He's not threatened by it. And he's prosperous, he says, in all of his ways. I love how um, whoever this author is, he goes in and out of poetic language. To the, he goes poetic and literal. Well, in the first verse, he goes literal uh, and then poetic. And here he goes uh, poetic and then literal. Uh, that's probably a, a tool of, of literature that I don't know the name of. The, the same illustration is used by Jeremiah. Uh, have you ever noticed some plagiarism in the Bible? Well, if you're the Holy Spirit, you can plagiarize yourself all that you want, okay? He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Jeremiah 17, seven through eight. He plagiarized, didn't he? You don't think so? He stole it, but it was, it was worth it. So, of course, in the, the, this poetic language, the rivers of water represent the word of the Lord, and the tree is the blessed man, and he runs his roots deep into the word of God because he knows that it's there that is his strength. It's the source of his happiness. It's the source of his security and satisfaction. He wants to partake of its benefits, so he has to take, take advantage of it so that he might enjoy its bounty, the blessedness of delighting and meditating on the word. Um, now, this contrast of the godly and the ungodly, the, uh, the counsel, the path, and all those things, I told you guys to be processing, those of you guys that were here, uh, in what modern context of your life uh, would verse 1 a- apply, these contrary voices? Um, it becomes very obvious, I think, in multiple social contexts for the Christian it becomes very evident when I'm counseling someone from the scriptures who is also getting counsel from a non-believer, professional or otherwise, or from another believer who doesn't know the scriptures. Because when you, when you give someone counsel and a course of action that you know is definitive and clear from the scriptures, and then they say, well, I was talking to so-and-so, and, uh, and they give you something that is off the wall compared to the scriptures. And you realize that they're receiving counsel from the ungodly or counsel that is ungodly, where it's a believer sometimes that uh, doesn't really understand what they're saying, contrary to the scriptures. At worst still is uh, the marriage advice that comes from your buddies at work who corrals on weekends. Um, I counsel a lot of men in their marriages, and uh, they'll say, I'm coming to you because I know what the guys will say. Well, I'm I'm glad. I know what the guys will say. I meet with a ton of people who have often been exposed to just numerous opinions, all of which are rooted in something other than the Bible. Uh, 
you know, you, you, you listen to people, you listen to their story, uh, you hear uh, the kinds of things that have been said to them. Oftentimes people are counseled to do what they want or what feels right to them because that's where true happiness lies. Yeah. Or they're encouraged to take care of number one because that makes for a healthy marriage. That couple's destined to be heirs together of the grace of life, as Peter promised. Because that's definitely his counsel in 1 Peter 3, isn't it? Paul's in Ephesians 5. Uh, I'm surprised with how much um, revenge is counseled to people, punishing people for the crimes committed against us. Because that will satisfy our longing for happiness, is punishing people. But as you've probably noticed, it's not always counsel from the outside that we must be careful of. Uh, how many of you receive counsel from your sin nature? Every decision you make, huh? Yeah. Loves to give counsel, set a course of action, and then threaten us. Uh, the enemy sure loves to share his counsel because he has our best interest in mind. Yeah. The best way to identify bad counsel is to meditate on the Word of God and to practice its precepts. That's the best way. And it's also the simplest way. C.S. Lewis says that all of God's ways work. All of God's ways work. And, and I think this would make sense, saying that hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. When you give counsel, people are most of the time seeking some kind of wisdom. And I say, well, I'm, I don't have all that much wisdom, but I know somebody that does. And it's found in the text of his word. He's given it to us. Um, Paul says that God's word is able to fully equip us for every good work. Well, the last time I checked, marriage is a good work, and it can be some work for Shandy, okay? Parenting is a good work. Evangelism is a good work, right? Being a godly boss is good work. Being a godly employee is a good work. Being a missionary, being a pastor. And Paul says that the word of God can equip us uh, he says that he might be complete, fully equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through, uh, through 17. What, what did I miss? Being a friend is a good work. Managing your finances is a good work. Uh, have you ever noticed how many times the scriptures talk about being a good neighbor? And, and I don't mean like, you know, we use the word neighbor in an in a umbrella kind of way that everybody we encounter is our neighbor. No, but in the Proverbs, literally the person you live next to, the Proverbs are full of talking about how to be a good neighbor. And I've watched civil war break out around me in my neighborhood between neighbors. And uh, magically, we have maintained good relationships with all of our neighbors. Because I don't go out in the morning. <laughs> it's a good work to do that. Coming along people in their sorrows is a good work. Yeah, so many things. Instruction in righteousness is found in the scriptures so that we might be fully equipped for every one of those things. Those are the benefits of the word, just some of them. And for those that would live according, who would dare to live according to his word, there's true happiness. But, verse four and five, the ungodly are not so. Uh, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, Isaiah also uh, plagiarizes on this, talking about this plight in a similar, with a similar illustration. He says, therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness 
and their, their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. It's, it couldn't be any clearer than that in the scriptures. Now earlier the contrast was between you know, what the ungodly do versus what the godly do, but now the contrast is what the, godly, or the ungodly get versus what the godly get for their ways. That's the contrast now. In judgment, he says the ungodly are swept away. And have you guys ever, um, you know, uh, sifted wheat or barley or a grain? Not like Gideon. You know the story of Gideon. He, he was afraid of the enemy, so he went down into a wine press, and he had his, uh, you know, the the shallow basket. The grain is in it. You flick it into the air. You roll it so that when the wind blows by, it blows the chaff out and the wheat falls down. But when you're down in a wine press, the chaff is just sticking to your sweaty face. And then the angel of the Lord leans in and says, hey, mighty man of valor. A little bit of sarcasm in that whole thing. But you stand on a, high, on a higher elevated place where the breeze is and, then you, and chaff is useless. It's either burned or it's, it's blown away. And it goes to a worthless place. He says here that the ungodly in judgment are just swept away and they're excluded from the blessedness of the righteous. But he says the godly are blessed and the ungodly cursed. I think that we see all, this all, all throughout our culture as we become more secular and as our culture becomes just, just more crazy, the more miserable it gets and the more miserable, I think, as they get, the more miserable they want others to be. Verse six, he says... For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now he's just coming out and saying it. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, um, who has an alternative translation for the first line? Mine says, for the Lord knows. Somebody have something different? Does everybody use the New King James except for Mike and Margaret? Do you use ESV? That's the inspired version there. He watches. Okay, yeah. What's that? He knows the way. Okay, yeah. Uh, it, it really is speaking of his, his, his watchful care for those who live according to his word. He's, he's looking after them so that he might care for them. Uh, the, the knowledge is not simply being aware of what the righteous are doing. It's, it's this uh, intimate uh, nature of, of his providence. Okay, Knowing means providing. Knowing means protecting. Knowing means satisfying. Uh, Dr. Willem uh, uh, Van Gemeren, he's a uh, professor of Old Testament. He's a, uh, a Hebrew scholar. He argues that this is an expression of God's covenantal commitment to his people to, to intimately know of their affairs and then dealing with them in his providence. He's a promise keeper. He's made a covenant with his people. He's a good dad. But in the contrast here, he has, no, he has no such covenant commitment to the ungodly. He, he offers them no such provision, no such protection. Uh, their ways will bring them to ruin. Okay? As Paul says in Romans 2 and, and in chapter 9, they're, they're busy storing up for themselves wrath uh, for the day of wrath. They're preparing themselves for destruction. That's what they're doing. The righteous will be happy for eternity. As David prophesied, he says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 
11. But the ungodly, Daniel says, will spend eternity in shame and contempt, Daniel 12, 3. So when you look at, I mean, that's just a sampling of the contrast between the godly and the ungodly. There, there's just no substitute for the word of God. There's a lot of things out there that can complement it. There's a lot of things out there that I think can encourage you in your faith. But there's no substitute for the word of God. Not in this life, not in the life to come. His word is the only one that endures forever. And I think that what God's people uh, are, are missing perhaps is this. The word of God is the most underestimated force in the world, except to the blessed man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, Lord, either, either it can be cherished more than our necessary food, or it's a sham. Either it's that which brings us happiness, or it's all a joke. But Lord, your word itself, and by the experience of so many, Lord, your word has proven to be the source of life and, and joy and strength and courage. And Lord, there's so many things out there that we've substituted for your word. We've delighted in so many other things. And what we're doing is just robbing ourselves of happiness, as you would define it. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to identify anything in our life that is a substitute that is distracting us, even if it's a good thing. Because there's joy to be had, there's righteousness to obtain, there's instruction to receive, Lord, in regard to our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, so many things. Lord, help us not to avoid what is actually authoritative, what endures forever. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, that uh, you would strengthen our faith in your word, and we would trust you with it. And Lord, we would apply it to every situation, even if we don't understand it, as the book of Proverbs say. We want to lean our own understanding, but too many times our own understanding has proven to be foolish. So Lord, help us to just look to you and say, yes, Daddy, I trust you. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name.